And that's not the kind of Christ that Jesus intends to be. He has a very different picture in mind. And the rest of the book of Matthew is going to paint that picture for us. In fact, Jesus, for the rest of the book of Matthew, is going to give his own portrait of the Christ as he defines what that means to be the Christ. So we're going to be looking this morning really at verses 21 through 23, just one short paragraph. I'm going to start up as I read here in a moment uh, in verse 20, just so we can kind of capture a little bit of that as well. But this coming right off of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Let's read together. Matthew 16, starting in verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. God's word. Coming off of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, verse 20 is unexpected. It's unexpected. Peter and the disciples finally realize that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. The first 16 chapters of the book of Matthew did their work. Finally, the disciples get it. Finally, they see who he is. And as soon as they figure out who he is, they find themselves in a non-disclosure agreement (laughs) with Jesus. You can't tell. This is striking. This is surprising. Why would he do this? Well, Well, the whole nation, we have to remember, was anticipating the Christ. They were, they were suffering under the bondage of Rome, and they were looking forward to their king to come and rescue them, sword in hand. And so to say that the concept of Christ had political overtones is a dramatic understatement. It was thought of in political terms. The, the, the coming warrior king to spill Roman blood and liberate the people of God and establish God's presence and kingdom on earth which is a fact not at all why Jesus came. And so if, if the word began to get out that the Christ was here, it would, it would just feed into this lie. It, it, it would not be perceived correctly. So, so that's one reason. But the other reason is, in fact, that he had to be faithful to his actual mission, which involved overtly not building a power base. You think Jesus could have built a power base? Could have formed a political party? Could have gotten some disenfranchised people to support him? In a heartbeat. And he would have never gone to the cross if that was the road he chose. He could not build earthly power. And so he tells them and charges them strictly to keep his identity quiet. And then he begins to tell them what kind of Christ he will be, verse 21, 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It says, from that time. From what time? From the time that they figured out who Jesus was. Oh, he's the Christ. Okay. From that time, he began to teach them about what kind of Christ he was going to be. This is a a literary marker in the book of Matthew that informs us, okay, we're at a new stage in the book, and the rest of the book is going to be working this out right here, what he's talking about here. So from that time, it says from that time, Jesus began to teach. He didn't do all his teaching all at once. It wouldn't have worked. Clearly, as he begins to teach them here, they were unprepared for what he was about to say. They're not going to get it the first time or the second or the third. They're not going to understand it as they see the actual cross. It's not going to be until after the fact and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that they're going to begin to put all of these pieces together finally. And yet he begins to build the wall. Brick by brick by brick. Or to switch analogies, he begins to paint the portrait. And he really begins by erasing their portrait. Beginning to take a, an eraser and get rid of these false ideas of what it means to be the Christ instead to get out very dark colors and to paint with deep brush strokes the image of a broken and crucified man in their minds. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. From this point on in Matthew, the geography is going to help tell the story. Jesus is up in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It is far from Jerusalem. The rest of Matthew is going to have him slowly making his way to Jerusalem. You you can track the, the plot through the geography. Jesus begins his march to the city that kills the prophets and to the place where he will suffer many things. And Peter does not like what he's hearing. He is not impressed. He's got this beautiful portrait of a king. Perhaps it's the one that you just drew. This beautiful portrait of a king in his mind. And and he feels like Jesus has just got out this black sharpie and is just going all over it and just defacing it and debasing what it means to be the Christ. And so in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. No, no, Jesus. That's not what it means to be the Christ. Now, motivated perhaps by love for Jesus, that'd be a charitable assumption, but certainly he loved the Lord. Perhaps he thought that Jesus was just being pessimistic. That he was, you know, looking around and seeing some opposition and, you know, Jesus let it get to him. And so he's just being kind of, he's having a down day. Peter just needs to lift him up. Or perhaps he thought a bit of his own willingness to help Jesus get to the throne. And a bit of hubris and pride thought, no, no, that's not going to happen to you because I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen to you. However, it happened, the disciple rebukes the master. 
And so Jesus responds in verse 23. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus calls Peter two things in here, and they're not good. The first is Satan. (laughs) Peter's words are satanic. They are a temptation targeted at Jesus from hell through Peter. They are aimed at him as a human being. Even as a perfect human being, there was nothing about his body that wanted to suffer. Every human part of him recoiled at the idea of suffering. So what is this temptation that Satan offers Jesus? You can be the Christ without the cross. You can be the king without suffering. Be the Messiah without affliction. Take the easy road. Peter, Jesus also calls Peter a hindrance. So the word hindrance in the original is stumbling block. He calls him a, a stumbling block. Like you're walking down the road and you've got that you know, one stone that's a little higher than the rest and you stub your toe on it. And maybe it causes you to trip and stumble and perhaps even fall down. This is an ironic thing for Jesus to say right here. Back up in verse 16, go Peter, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, okay, and you're the rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be a keystone in the foundation of the church. Oops, misplaced stone. Now Jesus is stumbling over this stone. He is a hindrance. His suggestions are satanic because, Jesus tells us why, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is where Peter was off. He was thinking from a human perspective, not attempting to consider from God's perspective what's going on. Which means if we're going to understand the cross, if we're going to understand Jesus going to Jerusalem and suffering many things and dying and being raised, it requires that we set our minds on the things of God, not on the things of man. And to do that, I want to go back up to verse 21 and consider a phrase that up to now we have overlooked, that we have not yet considered, that we need to take time to consider and unpack says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. It does not say, from that time, he began to tell his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, as though he's announcing the plan. Hey guys, want to go to McDonald's? Hey guys, want to go to Jerusalem? You know, this is not a planning discussion. Nor is he simply speaking prophetically, as though God has revealed to me that we will go to Jerusalem. It is neither of those things. Instead, what he is saying is that he must go to Jerusalem. Perhaps it would be better translated, it is necessary that I go to Jerusalem. It is necessary that this happen. Why? 
Why is it necessary? Why must he go? Well, if we were limited only to the first 16 chapters in Matthew, we would hopefully be able to see that when Jesus speaks like this, he's speaking as a man under authority. He's speaking to, of, of one who was sent on a mission. You might recall a few weeks ago, if you were here, if you've read through Matthew, when, when Jesus talked to the uh, Gentile woman, he said to her, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's a man who was sent. And so why must he go? Because he was sent by the Father. And from that, I think it would be obvious that we could say, well, if he was sent, if that's why he must go, then certainly he must go according to the plan and the purpose of God. It is the plan and purpose of God that is sending Jesus to Jerusalem for him to go, for him to suffer many things, for him to die and be raised. And so then again, we would ask, why? Why is this the plan of God? Now, I'm going to cut to the, cut to the end for a moment because I know that, that we have all heard these things, that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. That he came and, and died a, a substitutionary death. Now, a substitutionary death means that he died in the place of the one who should die. That, that, there's, that there are those worthy of death in Christ took their place on the cross. This is substitutionary atonement. That he died for those who should have died. That he suffered for those who should have suffered. That he went to Jerusalem and suffered many things for those who should have suffered many things. But the question still remains, why did he do that? In other words, couldn't have Jesus have just saved people some other way? Couldn't he, couldn't he have found another way? Could God have just chosen to save, chosen to forgive? Forgiveness without the cross? On some level, wasn't that Peter's suggestion? And that was called satanic. I think we have to start with, if Jesus says it's necessary, then it is. That's a good place to start. But, but what made it necessary that he would die? Two things made it necessary. The sin of man and the holiness of God. If, if man had not sinned, man would need no savior. And Christ going to the cross would not have been necessary. Right? But in fact, man did sin, does sin, will sin, for as long as the earth remains. Sin is an affront to God's character and persons. To the, to the, to the very essence of God himself. And not only is it an evil thing, but it is an exceptionally dangerous thing. Because of the holiness of God. So God's holiness is his, his complete otherness. And, and a part of that is, is his moral purity, his righteous goodness. The fact that there are no imperfections in him at all. The fact that he is utterly committed to good and utterly opposed to evil. Perhaps you can start to see the problem. When man makes himself evil, God, in his goodness, being utterly opposed to evil, 
Man's in a bad place, a dangerous place. From the moment humanity sinned, humanity was doomed. Who can rescue from the hand of the almighty, holy God in his commitment to uphold justice, in his commitment to do what is right and good? The very goodness of God requires that he punish sin. He is, as it were, constrained by his own perfection to punish sin and sinners. And he has declared that the wages of sin is death. And so there can be no salvation apart from dealing with this problem. The problem that the wages of sin is death, death and they've not been paid. So this is why Christ would go to die. But why did Jesus have to die? So he said it was necessary that he go to Jerusalem. Could not someone else have done this? Why the Son of God himself? Let's start with this. Could we send an angel? Which of the angels would be willing to do this? Instead, friend, the debt of sin was mankind's debt. It was the debt of man, and by man it must be paid. It must be paid by a human. And so God became human? Glory. No angel could die for sinful man. It must be a man. Okay, okay, it must be a man. Then let's send one of the disciples. They're pretty committed. <laughs> hey, Peter. <laughs> must be a perfect man. Else that man is only dying for himself. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice that sin deserved death. Any imperfect man would only find himself dying for himself. But maybe we could find another perfect man. A perfect man could die for one other perfect man. How does one die for many? How does one die for countless generations over every continent, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation? No man can pay such an enormous price. But God can. And so it is none but the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who could do what he did. It was necessary that he do this. If any were to be saved, it must be through death, and it must be through the death of Jesus. But was that necessary? Was it necessary to save anyone? Was that required? Let's just not save anybody now that we see the cost. Let's just, let's just allow sinful humanity to go to justice as is well-deserved. And yet God chose to save. 
Why? Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does God do at the cross? He shows His love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here we come to the deepest and most profound answer. Here we get to set our minds not on the things of earth, but on the things of God. Why was it necessary for Jesus to go to Jerusalem? Because God loves sinners. That's why it's necessary. Because God chose to love the undeserving and the ill-deserving and the wrath-deserving. Friends, let this soak into your soul. Let this be a, a reality to you. Nothing made God do this. Nothing made him do this. He was compelled by no external argument or pressure. He was not required to save anyone by his own holiness or goodness or justice. No, holiness and justice would have been satisfied with the destruction of sinners. When in eternity past, God decided to save, there was no one there representing man. No one entered into the council of God and pleaded with God on behalf of sinful humanity. No one. But God pleaded. God pleaded with God on behalf of sinful humanity. And Father, Son, and Spirit planned to redeem a people because they set their affection on a people. God was utterly free to not choose to save, and yet He chose to love. He chose to love His people, mystery upon mystery. He chose to love. And having made that choice, once that threshold was crossed, Jesus must go to Jerusalem. It is now necessary. God constrained himself by his free choice to love onto a path that resulted in sacrificing himself for the sake of his people. And so as Jesus is beginning to paint this picture for the disciples, you know, and Peter's freaking out at what this means, Jesus is beginning to open the door into the eternal counsels of God and to say, this is why I'm here. I have come to execute the plans of God and to fulfill the purposes of God and to enact the desires of God and to die in the place of the people of God. The painting that the disciples had of Jesus was a king on his throne, but the painting that he has is a king on the cross, because only there could he save his people, and only there could he fight their greatest enemy and rescue them from sin and save them from the wrath of God. Only there he must go to Jerusalem if he is to save the people of God. And he does this motivated by love for his people. Friends, this love is beyond all comprehension. This love is amazing. The heart of the gospel. So the gospel, right? Jesus, the God-man, perfect God-man, suffered in the place of sinners. 
Lived the perfect life. Suffered, died, rose again. That's the gospel. The heart of the gospel is not just that Jesus was born and suffered and died. The heart of the gospel is why it was necessary for him to do these things. That's the heartbeat of the gospel right there. Why did all this happen? The heart of the gospel is the love of God to sinful humanity. And so responding to the gospel is not simply responding to facts. You know, yep, I agree. Yep, I know he did this. I know he did this. I believe he is that. Responding to the gospel is responding to the personal love of God for you. That's responding to the gospel. Now, you're only going to know about that as you hear and understand the facts of what Jesus did. But it's, it's, as it were, seeing through those facts to the face of God who decided that it was necessary to do what needed to be done that you could be saved. We all have experience with love in different degrees in life. Maybe it's a parent's love, maybe a grandparent, maybe a spouse or a good friend. Any earthly love that you have experienced is but the dimmest shadow, the faintest reflection of the love of God. Take that best example and multiply it in your mind. Herein is the love of God for all who believe. So friend, if you've never turned to Christ, and I say this often because because people can come to church for years and not have turned to Christ. If you've never turned to Christ, the, the key to becoming a Christian is not so much a change in mind as a change in heart. It is an encounter with the living God who loves you despite your sin. And, and, and the, 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 the change that ought bring in you is one that mourns over your sin and repents of your sin and loves the God who loves you. We love him because he first loved us. So I want to invite you, if you've never turned to Christ, to do so now and to see in the face of Christ the glory of God revealed in his love even for you. Church, there is there is no higher revelation of the glory of God than what we've been talking about right here. There's no higher revelation. This this is where we see it. This is the highest reason for praise, the deepest cause for worship. It is the revelation of the love of God in the death of the Son of God for people. This is why heaven is praising right now, by the way. If you, if you were to look over into Revelation chapter 5, what's the song that they're singing? They're singing, worthy, worthy, worthy. Of course they're singing that. He's God. But particularly, they're singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's what they're singing. Church, this ought to be our song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Every king deserves his honor. But this is a king like no other. And he deserves 
the worship of all peoples. Scripture tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. What are they going to confess? They're going to confess Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that this will bring glory to the Father. It is His name that is above every name. So worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Church, sometimes we have a, you know, in a sermon, in a passage, you know, there's, there's a call to, to do something. You know, stop this particular sin or, or you know, uh, change this particular thing in life. I, I think this is a transformative passage. But the first step is worship. So if you're wondering the application, the application is worship. Hopefully I didn't have to tell you that. Because <laughs> worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because God freely chose to love his people, even at this cost, that made it necessary for Christ to go to Jerusalem. We're going to close our time in, in worship together. So we're going to sing, sing together with hearts filled with what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that the enemy's job is to obscure us from seeing Christ rightly. The enemy blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we feel often that we see you so imperfectly ourselves. O Spirit, work in us that we may see Christ more clearly. That we may honor Him more fully that we may long more and more to be like Him and to give Him glory with our thoughts and words and actions and songs. Spirit, work within us that we may behold Him and worship Him to the glory of God the Father. We ask for this great work in the name of Jesus. Amen.